This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. The Big Interview with Offscript. Well, we're hearing from Jonathan Taplin, who's the author of The Magic Year, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. And also, more recently, his book, The End of Reality, How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars, and Crypto. Can I have a guess at who the billionaires are? Yeah, I, go I have ahead. obviously no idea, but yeah. I'm, I'm obviously going to guess go the obvious ones. Uh, Jeff Bezos. No, he does not make the list of the uh, four. Okay, brilliant. That was a good start. Okay, Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, Musk. Yep, yes. Gate. No. Ooh. You got two so far out of four. I don't think I can get the other two. I don't know two. that you're going to get the other two. <laughs> you're so cool. <laughs> I'm so hard again. Whoops. Let me get the four. Yeah, 50%. That's Peter pathetic. Thiel. Never uh, heard of him. Peter Thiel. You never heard of Peter Thiel? No. We need he to do was, a How They Made It on Peter Thiel. He was also co PayPal? founder of PayPal or it's yeah. CEO, certainly, of PayPal, but I believe he co founded it with Musk. Yeah. Also, Mark Andreessen. Who's he? Oh, I don't know. Venture capitalist. Ooh. Anyways, we are going to be getting to that. But let's start with his early years first, because, you know, Taplin currently works in academia at the University of Southern California, but his career actually started out with him as a tour manager for Bob Dylan and the band. How the heck does he go from that to where he is today? Well, and he's done so much more than that, because he went from college student, tour manager for Bob Dylan and the band, to producer of films, including Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets. (laughs) Then he went on to working, you know, at Merrill Lynch on mergers and acquisitions. And then from there started a video on demand company and now is in academia. So he's he's jumped around quite a lot. He's done quite a bit in his career. So let's get right back to the beginning. How do you get in with these bands? How do you become a tour manager for Bob Dylan, basically off the bat? And it was a bit of serendipity, really. So he was in the summer before his first year of college. He ended up at the Newport Folk Festival. And just one thing led to another. I had a friend who got me a backstage pass and then introduced me to some musicians, uh, Jeff Muldar and uh, Maria Muldar, who were part of a band called the Jim Queskin Jug Band. Somebody stole my gal. Somebody stole my band. They needed a road manager for the weekend, and I said I'd love to do that. And then they went and introduced me to their manager, Albert Grossman, and Albert Grossman was the manager of Bob Dylan. And that was the fateful weekend that Bob Dylan decided to go electric at Newport and caused a a ridiculous amount of chaos and backlash at the Newport Folk Festival. So I began working for Albert, and then all through Princeton, I would do weekend gigs as a road manager, first for the Jug Band, and then for Judy Collins, and then Janis Joplin, and then Bob Dylan and the band. So that was the start. Uh, When I graduated from Princeton, I moved to Woodstock, went to the Woodstock Festival with the band, and then went to the Isle of Wight with uh, Bob Dylan and the band. And when I was at the Isle of Wight, met most of the Beatles who came to visit Bob. And out of that came an offer from George Harrison three years later to to produce the concert for Bangladesh. Now I'm asking all of you to help us save some lives. 
Spanish was over, most of the musicians I really cared about had stopped touring. And so I took a chance and went to California just to check out the movie business. Was introduced to a young film editor named Marty Scorsese. And um, I was so naive, I didn't know you weren't supposed to invest your own money in movies. And I agreed to finance his first major feature called Mean Streets. He has made that all sound <laughs> so blooming yeah, easy. So blasé. Yeah. Oh, this movie business. Let's check it out. Oh, yeah. Marty. Yeah, exactly. He seems like he's got a bit of potential. He just got introduced to Marty Scorsese. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry like Scorsese. He, he got Scorsese. introduced to George Harrison and then three years later put on a gig in Bang to save Bangladesh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, first <laughs> Well, yeah. kind of. It was a tribute, sort of a yeah. fundraising concert because they were going through a bit of a refugee crisis at the time. Yes. So he put it on at Madison Square Garden in New York, but it was a fundraiser. But also, who reaches out three years yeah. after uh, arbitrarily being introduced to someone? If you don't hear, hear from them within a week, they end never contacting you again. Yeah, I, I can't get over the whole story. The idea that he just went backstage once because his friend had a pass. Then he meets somebody who introduces him to Bob Dylan's manager. Suddenly he's doing gigs for that guy. And before you know it, he's meeting the Beatles. Like, it's just such a, it mm. follows such an, like, an easy path that just doesn't seem real. If you were having a Jonathan Taplin career right now, you'd be like, yeah, I just wanted to get into podcasts. So I, I just got introduced to a guy called Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, he seemed like a nice guy. He put me on the right track, and before you know it, I had a million subscribers on my podcast. It's so true. This stuff doesn't just happen anymore. Like, you can't just stumble no. into into that kind of success, can you? With, well, with the people that high profile? Oh, there'll always be someone. You can achieve instantaneous success in different ways, I suppose. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I mean, think the, and this guy's just his, the, the sheer nature of his, his career. He's gone from music to film to now, I mean, we're getting there, but he's writing books about why billionaires are going to bring death and destruction to the world. <laughs> Which is right about that, I think. Yeah. Well, well, I think you'll like what he has to say because going back to the 60s and 70s, I mean, the first thing you think is, what an era, right? This is the time, more than any, that I kind of wish I could have lived through. And I kind of wonder, is that just something that we have a romanticized view of now Fair. as we look back? All these legends that we think of, they were at their peak. So how does he look back on that time as somebody who was living through it? It was an extraordinary creative period. You know, I, I believe that culture and politics go through both revolutionary times and non-revolutionary times. And, and that was definitely a revolutionary time. In other words, the, the kind of renaissance of creativity that was coming out of people like Bob Dylan and the band and the Grateful Dead and the Beatles, you know, is something that we haven't seen for at least the last 15 years. And it was a, a, a sense of openness. And it wasn't that political, actually. I mean, in some ways, the politics of uh, the late 60s were kind of dispiriting because Richard Nixon became president in 68. And, you know, Bobby Kennedy got killed and Martin Luther King got killed. And so a lot of us kind of turned away from politics and, and just threw ourselves into the kind of creative swirl that was at first the music business and then it, it bled into the movie business, uh, a, a sense of challenging the conventional wisdom, uh, the sense of willingness to make really original movies. I mean, if you think about a movie like Mean Streets, it's completely 
different and personal and original. And, and that was what was happening all the way through that period. One of the most exciting times uh, of my life. So he really does paint a picture of a golden era. I mean, he oh, describes it as a renaissance. You compare that to now. I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but I mean, now there's no, there's very little. That's why everyone got so excited about Barbie and Oppenheimer. Yeah. Just yeah. a bit of creativity in the uh, cinema. Well, it's interesting that you say that because that's exactly where I took the conversation. What does that mean from his point of view for the era that we are in now? You know, there's an old saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast every morning. <laughs> And, and it's also culture eats politics for breakfast every morning. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I believe that culture is the dominant force that moves the society forward or backward. And unfortunately, I think we've been in a very nihilistic age for quite a while. I mean, if you think about, you know, obviously I'm talking about American media, but, but if you think about just television, for instance, all of the heroes are dark anti-heroes, from The Wire to The Sopranos to Breaking Bad to Mad Men to White Lotus, Succession. These are all stories of essentially amoral people who are struggling to dominate the world. And if you live with that kind of cultural lifestyle for 10 years. I think the Sopranos started in early 2000s, 10 or 15 years. You know, it's not surprising that in 2016, a lot of people might say, well, why shouldn't Tony Soprano be president? And that's how we get Donald Trump, you know? So, I mean, what I think is happening now is something different. I mean, it's not surprising to me that all the big Music tours this summer were dominated by women. Um, Beyonce's tour and Taylor Swift's tour. And these people are all putting out a very kind of positive, hopeful, somewhat vulnerable vibe. I think Rob reacted the same way I did when he said, you know, Tony Soprano could be president. That's how you get a Donald Trump. I mean, I thought that was a leap. That's a massive leap. I don't think you can pin too much on the Sopranos, <laughs> David Chase and his team when it comes to the emergence of Donald Trump at the White House. I think his broader point there with that is that, you know, you get used to a cultural norm or, yeah. or expectation and that it enables or it allows certain things, perhaps a certain direction. You know, just that culture does play an influence in the no way that we think about no the world around yeah, us. Yeah, I think Trump sprung from, obviously, the polarization of the culture, mm. but also people's malaise at being lectured to by mm. the establishment yeah. and, mm. you know, assuming that they know what's best. The pomposity of the Hillary Clintons of this world gave us, ultimately, Donald Trump, who was kind of the antidote to that. So, in short, blame Hillary. Is what we're saying there. But I, no, exactly I think it's probably more to blame than, than yeah. Tony Soprano's Tony. six seasons on HBO. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you heard him mention there in the end that he's seeing signs of things changing. There is, from his point of view, signs of hope, definitely things to look forward to. I wanted to get a couple anecdotes about Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin, some of the characters around that time who, you know, seem to me to be such individuals compared to the social media age that we live in today, right? You look at Instagram, you look at TikTok, and to me, from the outside looking in, it's just everybody trying to look the same Uniformity. and act the same right. and do the same dances. There's something about, you know, kind of all converging towards a norm as opposed to people that Truly seem to be being, trying to stand yeah, out. unique and individual. And, 
you know, he said that there is a formula in the way that culture is being made right now. He said, look at the Marvel films. I mean, this is not an unexplored topic here on Offscript. Rob has definitely talked about this before. He said, you can predict the plot up to the minute. They're so formulaic, these Marvel films. He's also warned about a future in which Hollywood bosses are going to want AI to spit out a plot. Screenwriter salaries will go down dramatically because, you know, they'll be called in just to fix the script that AI has generated. That's how he sees the movie industry going. That is Black Mirror stuff, isn't it? Yeah, well, and as he pointed out, it's not just the screenwriters that are going to suffer from this. What we're going to get is a gigantic amount of formula mediocrity. In other words, I can go on Google's large language uh, music model and say, give me a Bob Dylan song from the late 60s, an anti-war Bob Dylan song, and it will turn out something. The lyrics will be banal. The voice will sound somewhat like Bob Dylan, but it won't be Masters of War. It will not. It will just be mediocre. You know, the society has moved forward by genius. It's not moved forward by mediocre formula. And we already have too much of formula. And what we're about to get is, you know, 100 times more. Because what we're beginning to realize is that when AI learns on stuff that AI has made up, it leads to what they call model collapse. In other words, the AI begins to get stupider. So, I mean, we're facing a crisis, not just for writers or actors or musicians or something like this, but but also, you know, what is it that makes us human? It's 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 the ability to to be inspired by genius. You know, I mean, if I think about Bob Dylan, to give you an anecdote, I think the things that were brave was his ability in the early part of his career. We've just had the, you know, the anniversary of Martin Luther King's March on Washington. Before that, all summer of that year, Bob Dylan was in Mississippi and other places singing to voting rights rallies to get black voters to come out and, and, and have the courage to try and register to vote. And those were dangerous things. I mean, a year after he was in Greenwood, Mississippi, three civil rights workers were murdered by the Ku Klux Klan. And Bob Dylan sang at the March on Washington. And so, you know, his ability, his willingness to speak out is something that, quite frankly, I find missing. I I don't hear the big hip-hop artists speaking out. Uh, about social issues very much. They, they talk more about their Lamborghinis and, and their private jets and stuff like that. I think that's a bit of cherry picking. I do think there are some I was going to say main, you know, some people who do speak out on social issues and, and we do still see that in today's yeah. day and age. But I get it. It's not as dramatic. It's not as sort of stand out in the way that you would see Bob Dylan. Doing Often when they speak thing. out, though, they're doing it to kind of paint themselves in a good light. There's curry fever. Yeah. There's a, there's a little bit of... That's the cynic in you. It's a bit preachy. You think? I mean, yeah. how can you... I think there's a lot of people who would have a genuine passion for, you know, standing up for what they believe is right, yeah. whatever their values are. Yeah. And I, I think there are a number of celebrities today who do still do that. But like I said, I get it. It's not quite as extreme as what we saw, 
you know, in the days of Bob Dylan, perhaps. But this brings us all to his most recent book, The End of Reality, How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars and Crypto. And in this, he focuses on four technocrats, as he calls them, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Mark Andreessen as well. And he wrote for Vanity Fair saying, until we stop worshiping at the temple of Saints Peter or Elon or Zuck or Mark, we will be trapped in the future they want. And I think this is his broader point that... A lot of the schemes that they put forward, whether it's crypto or transhumanism or colonizing Mars, it's just going to benefit themselves, he says, and the very rich. Mm. And that's something that we need to be aware of. So I asked him, what's the biggest threat that these individuals pose? He said it's their ideas like crypto and the metaverse, which he calls bunk, um, that are distracting attention from the real challenges and opportunities that are posed by tech. Look, there are a lot of things that technology could do to rescue the situation we find ourselves in. Energy, for instance. You know, at this point, the cost of solar energy and wind is lower than the cost of bringing oil out of the ground and certainly lower than coal or other sources of energy. But we aren't transitioning to them fast enough. And all this is doing is taking people's mind off the big issues. I talk about how, you know, there's a little company in Texas that that builds 3D printed houses. Now, here in Los Angeles, where I live, there's a desperate housing shortage. And when the city of Los Angeles tries to build a single family unit for a, a poor family, it costs them like $700,000. Whereas this 3D printed house could be made for $50,000. But but people aren't taking advantage of this technology. And I think that's his broader point with this book, is that technology can do so much, but we're focused on things like crypto instead of affordable housing. Yeah. And, and that's because of a lot of the sort of mythology, these great characters like Musk that people seem to really, you know, worship. And it's also promoting you can make money from it, right? Money yeah. makes the world go round at the end of the day. Scott just said in the text lines, and he's absolutely spot on, this guy is like Forrest Gump. Yeah. I mean, achieves so much mm. in so many different industries. I just happened to be around all of, you know, really legendary people in yeah. his career, right? So he said he started writing these books on tech. And Move Fast and Break Things was one, but the more recent one we've been talking about, The End of Reality, is another. Because he saw the way that internet was affecting many of his friends who were artists and musicians. I tell a story in Move Fast and Break Things, you know, Levon Helm was the drummer in the band, and the band broke up in 1976, but the band continued to make really good money because in the 80s, the CD came out, and so everybody replaced their old LPs with CDs. So all of a sudden, all the band fans bought all the records all over again. So the band was doing very well. And then in 2000, this thing Napster came out under the notion that all music should be free. Why music should be free as opposed to food, I don't know. But that was the thing they picked on because it's a small file size and easy to move around. So Levon went from making $120,000 a year in record royalties to making nothing. And he just happened to get throat cancer at the exact same time that this income fall. And there was a point 
where he had to ask his friends for some money to get medical treatment. So it just seemed incredibly unfair. And the music business has revived to some extent, but it's not any close to what it was. In other words, most people can't make a living off of just making recordings. Maybe Taylor Swift and Adele and Jay-Z can, but most average musicians can't. And so they have to tour 150, 200 days a year. That's where the money is now, which is so ironic in the digital age that you have to be in a physical presence with someone to actually make money off of music. And so that's what drew him, drew to his attention, the idea of technology and how it's impacting people's lives. And to be clear, he's not against technology. He just wants to point out that people driving a lot of these changes are motivated, of course, by self-interest. Technology has no moral valence whatsoever. You know, that, that old phrase, information wants to be free. Information doesn't want anything. Information is just information, you know. So... The notion of technological advancement is great. I'm sure that AI is better at reading mammograms than humans. That's fine. But we have to be careful how we use it. And that's what this whole kind of move fast and break things mentality neglects. The people who are trying to make AI ubiquitous as one of the people in my book says, they're more interested in becoming famous than in the possibility that what they're doing could lead to some kind of existential risk for humanity. They're not really worried about that. They just want to be famous and rich. So the idea is we don't need to blindly follow Elon Musk to Mars. No, we don't. I completely concur with Jonathan there. <laughs> He yeah. is a fascinating fellow, is Jonathan. Jonathan Taplin, the name of that book again, Sons? Yeah, we've got a couple of books that he's written uh, that you can check out. One of them is The Magic Year Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. That's from his time, of course, working with a number of bands. You've got his most recent one, The End of Reality, How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars, and Crypto. You've also got Move Fast and Break Things, which is based off of one of Mark Zuckerberg's sayings, which he kind of says, you know, move fast and break things, make things happen. Yeah. But of course, Jonathan Taplin is pointing out eh, maybe that's not the way to go the off script podcast we hope that you enjoyed this episode please do go ahead and click subscribe you can also check out our other podcasts time capsule or the big interview find it wherever you get your podcasts you've been listening to a dubai eye 103.8 podcast to enjoy lots more from dubai eye in the united arab emirates just go to dubaii1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.